0: So as we look at 1 Corinthians 9, this is something that's personal for me, as I've mentioned. But the other thing is that we have to keep in mind what we've just talked about in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 7 and 8. He've talked about uh, eating food sacrificed to idols. We went through that last week and how that's a matter of conscience. He uh, also talked about marriage and singleness and, and just how those matters of conscience apply to us uh, as believers and so keep all of that in mind as we jump into uh 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9 here. I'm gonna start reading at the beginning and uh, and then we'll take a few stops and look at these. So 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting at verse 1, he says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are we are you not the work in my work in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Cephas is Peter. um, He says, "Or Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is He? Or is He speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow and hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things uh, in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we do not use this right, but we endure all things, that we may cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar?" so also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. We're going to stop there for right now. So it's like, wow, okay, Paul's kind of making a point here. Um, So he starts off by talking about being free. He says, am I not free? Now remember just a few verses before this, he he points out to the Corinthians, don't let your freedom, your liberty be a stumbling block for others. So apparently they were pretty comfortable with saying they're free. And Paul tells him, if you're free, certainly I am. Because not only am I a believer, not only am I a follower of Christ, I'm an apostle. And you say, well, why is he making such a deal about the apostle, about being an apostle? Well, there were those who questioned him, you know, because he was not one of the originals. Uh, he had been known as a persecutor of the church. But he talks about seeing Jesus, that, that uh, when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and then his call to be an apostle. So he's making a case for his apostleship, uh, as he does elsewhere. Because some doubted him, some were critical, and some were even going to use the fact that he wasn't getting paid for his ministry as evidence of him not being an apostle. And he said, well, if you were really an apostle, you would get paid, like the rest of them were apparently getting paid for it. So he makes all these points. And then he tells them in verse 2, he says, "You," uh, He says, if I'm not an apostle to others, at least I am to you. They were the evidence of his apostleship. They were the product of his ministry, and they were witnesses of his ministry. So if anybody should have known that he was an apostle, it was them. He talks about eating and drinking. The idea is that he should, that he should be able to eat and drink without having to do work for it. That you know, certainly everyone needs to, uh, needs to be able to eat and drink. And in verse 5, he even talks about being married. He talks about how uh, he says that they have the right to take along a believing wife. As the rest of the apostles, so apparently the rest of the apostles were either married or certainly had the right to be married. Uh, and he says, uh, you know how uh, we know that Peter, Cephas was married. We see in uh, Matthew chapter eight, verse fourteen, a reference to his mother-in-law. So clearly, uh, we know that at least he was married, and more likely the others were as well. So then, he, and then in verse six, he says, "Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working?" So apparently the standard was that those who served in ministry, especially those who were apostles, were materially supported for their work. And so that Paul and Barnabas, those who worked with him, uh, were apparent uh, exceptions to that rule. And in verse 7, he jumps into some contemporary examples, some things that they would know just from what they see around them. He says, soldiers don't serve at their own cost. The vine dressers expect to get some of the product of what they're working for. And shepherds certainly take the milk from, uh, of those, from the, the livestock that they shepherd. And what's interesting about those three examples, soldiers, vine dressers, and shepherds, is all three of them have been used as illustrations or examples of those who are ministers. He talks about being soldiers in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He talks about ministers being vine dressers in 1 Corinthians 3, that we talked about a while back. And then uh, in 1 Peter chapter 5, he talks about ministers being shepherds. So these were not just examples that he plucked out of the air and said, oh yeah, they'll know that. They had meaning. And they're, you know, they were all used as examples of people who work in ministry. And then he goes, in, starting in verse 9, to some Old Testament examples. Uh, he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 25. Uh, he's talking about, Do not, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. Now, it, for those of us who weren't raised uh, in agricultural areas, we're like, what are you talking about threshing? Well, threshing was when you'd have uh, an animal like an ox that would be pulling a piece of equipment over the grain that was harvested to separate the grain out from the rest of it. And so the oxen would usually be going around in a circle doing this. And you would, and God tells them, don't muzzle the ox so that he can eat while he's doing his work. Um, but then Paul asks, he says, God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Martin Luther had a comment on this. Oxen can't read. Uh, so... Uh, you know, Martin Luther had a little bit of a sense of humor. Um, so he's talking about, you know, this is, yes, it has application for the oxen because God cares about animals. But doesn't he care so much more about us? We talked about that in our house fellowship, how God cares about the, the animals and the plants, but certainly he cares about us more. Um, Paul says elsewhere in Galatians 6, he says, The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. But then in verse 14, he says, um, So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. So what is he referring to here? There's two, two statements that come to mind pretty quickly. The first is in Matthew 10, where Jesus tells his disciples who were going out to, to do ministry, he says, Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey or even two coats or sandals or a staff for the worker is worthy of his support. Then in Luke chapter 10, uh, Jesus says, Stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. So what Jesus is telling His disciples when they are going out to do ministry, He says, Don't like try to pack up. You know, like when you're going on a camping trip, you pack everything that you're going to need so that when you go, you have it all. He's saying, Don't do that. Basically, go with the clothes on your back. And that, God's people will take care of you while you're out there. And he even tells them, I love this, uh, don't keep moving from house to house. There's this idea that, you know, you would go to one place and after you've been there for a while, well, you know, they got a little bit nicer house over here and they got a little bit better food. Maybe we should go over there. He says, no, go to where you, the first take the place that takes you in, stay there. You know, don't keep moving around trying to find a better deal somewhere. I think maybe some people in ministry could... Take a word from that. Um, but that's, that's a sidestep there. There are some legitimate concerns about paying ministers. And I don't want to undercut those or, or say that they're not an issue. Because um, as I said, I, I was in it. I, I know where these, these things come from. There's some drawbacks. When you, pay, when you have this professional ministry or this idea of clergy, which is not really a biblical idea, um, you have this chance that the church body can be disengaged from the work of ministry. They have this idea, oh, well, that's the pastor's job. You know, I don't have to do evangelism. That's what we pay him for. That, that, hopefully you've been around here long enough to know that that's not an acceptable uh, approach. It, it just builds into this consumer mindset that church is something where you go to and they give you stuff and then maybe you put some money in and then you leave. You know, the church is not Walmart. Uh, you know, we're a body. And so you can't bring a consumer mindset into the church uh, and it be a healthy church. Um, there 's also the fear of financial impact uh, if the leadership makes some unpopular decisions uh, i 've been in a situation where uh, there was one particular member of the church who was not happy with the leadership of the church and he says i 'm not giving a single dollar to the church as long as that person is a leader that 's wrong you know that that 's just wrong and you know in any way around it that that is one of the short that 's one of the problems that can arise when you have this idea of professional ministry. And it can also have a sense of entitlement. People who give a lot can feel like, well, I give all this money. Surely I should have some say into what goes on. So it cuts both ways. Um, But we also need to have a reality check about what support for ministers looks like, particularly what we see in the New Testament. We know that most of the early church was quite poor. And so when Paul's talking about being able to eat and drink, that's mostly what he's talking about, being able to eat and drink. Um, he, he's not necessarily talking about his 401K or anything like that. He's talking about being able to survive, to take care of his basic needs. Um, he's not talking about wealth or extravagance. Um, I, I did a little bit of research. Uh, the average full-time minister in the state of Georgia makes somewhere between 60 and 80000 depending on how you calculate the, uh, the package. Um, and tax issues are a whole other thing. Um, so for the most part, you know, you would look at that and think, hey, you know, ministers seem to be doing pretty well. There's a lot who make a lot less than that. When I was in ministry, I made a lot less than that. <laughs> and so, um, you know, and there's a lot of them who serve full-time and serve on a volunteer basis. But I think if you watch the news, especially around Atlanta over the past few years, you've seen some people, ministers, who made a ton of money off of their church, and usually at the expense of quite a poor congregation, but they manipulate their people to give. Um, and this is not something new. If you you know, in First Peter uh, chapter five, Peter tells them, "Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness." The idea of sordid gain is is a dirty gain, an un uh, you know. Something that's not right. So, this idea of manipulating people to give, that's something that's been a part of church history from the beginning because it's an opportunity to sin and there's going to be people who take that opportunity. So, we have to watch out for those abuses. Um, But as I've said, if you've been around One Hope Church a while, you know that we have kind of a contrasting view to ministry and the structure of the church than what you've probably seen in a lot of other places. As Derek's already mentioned, Jesus is our pastor. You know, we have no one in our church that holds the title of pastor or senior pastor or anything like that because Jesus is our pastor. There are those who have the gift of pastoring, and they do that. The other thing is that we have a plurality of leadership. We have four elders in our church um, because we don't think that most of the decisions that the church has to deal with should be made by one person, uh, that we have to go do these things together, uh, playing to our strengths and covering each other's weaknesses. Um, But we also believe in the priesthood of all believers, that each person who is a believer has something that they can contribute. That's why we have our open time to where anyone can contribute. We have our house fellowships the way they are. It's not a teaching session. It's a facilitated session where each person can bring what the Spirit gives them. Uh, And there's also time for correction there that you wouldn't have if somebody was just uh, giving a lesson. So all of these issues of professional ministry require balance. We can't go to the extreme to say, hey, you know, of wealth and extravagance, of people manipulating money from their churches. But we can't, we can't also have uh, to where it's like, well, ministers shouldn't get paid or that, you know, they're supposed to be kept in poverty or anything like that. So my take on it, and I think this lines up with Scripture, is that the compensation for people who are in ministry should be generally comparable to the church they're serving. If you have a church that is made up of a lot of wealthy people, you can't expect your, your uh, minister that you're supporting to live in poverty. That's just not right. But at the same time, if you're a minister to an impoverished community, you shouldn't expect to be living in a really nice house the next neighborhood over. You know, there has to be balance there. Um, we're, you know, We're all part of the body, uh, so it shouldn't go to one extreme or the other. Let's keep going through 1 Corinthians, starting at verse 15. Paul says, But I have used none of these things, and I'm not writing these things that it may be done in my case. For it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel." For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have its stewardship entrusted to me, what then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. So Paul says that he was obligated to preach. He was under compulsion. It was his duty. He had to do it. Um, and, And I think in his mind, there was no reward for him doing this because... He's like, I have to do it. I'm just being a good steward of what I've been commanded to do. But he says what he did voluntarily was to preach without charge. Which, again, reiterates that idea that those who normally did this were compensated for the work that they did. But he did it without charge, voluntarily, and it was for his glory, for his reward, in a sense, a free will offering. That there's the things that we're obligated to give, that we should give. But then there are those things that we do above and beyond that out of thanksgiving. And in a way, that's what he was doing. It was his free will. It was voluntary for him to preach the gospel without charge. So then we go, well, then how did he eat? How did he drink? He supported himself through making tents. And we know this from a couple of different places. In Acts 18... Uh, he connects up with Priscilla and Aquila, who we remember really important people in the early church. Their trade was also tent-making, so Paul connects up with them. Uh, and then in Acts 20, uh, when Paul is giving his farewell to the to the people in Ephesus, he says, You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who are with me. And then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, again he talks about working to provide for his own needs while he was doing ministry. So in today's language, that's what we'd call a bivocational minister, a person who has a job that they do to provide for their needs, and then in addition to that, they have responsibilities for ministry. Um, I never uh, served a church in a completely voluntary fashion, but I did on a part-time basis when I was in school, but also when I was working other jobs. I'd work 40 hours a week. Leave, uh, leave church on Wednesday, go have Wednesday night stuff, uh, usually a far away away because I never could end up working at a church that was close by. Um, so, you know, that, you know, this is something I've kind of lived uh, to a degree, but never on a volunteer basis. It was, I was always compensated at least something for that. So it's this idea that you have the job that provides for your needs, but then in addition to that, you're doing this work to uh, support the church. And the principle here is that there's a reward in making use of something that you have a right to. You have the right to something, but you choose not to claim it for the sake of the gospel. There's a reward in that. But Paul does not command or even expect that everyone would do that. And he doesn't even expect that of himself. This was a unique situation. Paul did receive financial support in other situations and in other places. In uh, Philippians chapter 4, he writes, "...for even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus which you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God." So even when he was in Thessalonica, where, as we read in 1 and 2 Thessalonians, he was actually still doing some work, he also was receiving financial support from other people uh, to continue his ministry. And he says that he was amply supplied. He had everything that he needed. So why, in the situation of Corinth, uh, and then also in a few other places, did he not receive financial support from the people that he was serving? Well, as we've already talked about, Corinth was a pretty messed up place. And I I believe in Paul's wisdom, he knew that if he was compensated by the people he was ministering to, it would cause problems. And so he put that barrier up and just said, no, I'm going to take care of my own needs. And even believers at other places would be supporting him. Um, But the people of Corinth would not be supporting him because he wanted to be able to freely do that. One is his reward, but also to uh, avoid any, any hindrances. To the gospel, and as I mentioned, there are those, there are some uh, even today who believe that ministers should not be compensated at all. Um, this was even something that you know, in my search to kind of figure out, you know, how God wanted us to be doing church, that I was like, well, is this a is this a real thing? And one of the things they do is they make a distinction between traveling preachers and evangelists and church planners and the salaried person at a, a local church. And they do that to try to make it where, well, Paul you know and the other ministers in the gospel were okay, but for most people today, that shouldn't be the case. Um, And I think that's kind of a false difference right there, because what they do is they focus solely on Paul, and they focus solely on his ministry at Corinth and Ephesus and Thessalonica, where he was supporting himself. And they miss all the other work that he did. They miss all the other apostles and ministers who were at the, going, on, who were working at the time. And they missed the whole point of the passage here. They missed what he's saying here. And if you really kind of look into it, and this is some judgment on my part, but they seem to be motivated by disappointment in the church. I've been there, okay? I've been disappointed with the church, church globally, not this church in particular, but overall I've been disappointed with the church at different times. And sometimes it's out of outright rebellion. People don't want a church to be responsible to. They don't want accountability. And this is just one more way that they can distance themselves. It's like, I can just sit in my house and read my Bible and I'll be fine. You know, or maybe get together with a couple of people. That's not church. That's not the the life that Christ has called us to. Um, and sometimes it's out of disobedience to give. Um, some people just, you know, don't want to give, and they're like, this is my money, I'm going to do with it what I want to. Um, Chet and I were talking a couple of weeks ago um, about kind of some early history of the church, because, uh, you know, I don't always, I haven't caught up on all those things, and so I was like, hey, tell me about like when we f- first started. It was about 15 years ago, and Chet came to Athens uh, to start uh, a church here, and he was being supported financially by the church that that's sinning, um, you know, very modestly, because single guy, living with a couple other guys, and uh, so they started. They started meeting. They had these meetings go on, and he, he told me about the first Sunday that they put the giving box out. One dollar, <laughs> one dollar was what came in, and you're just like, oh. So you you, you kind of make some judgments there. Um, but then a little bit later on, uh, the. Uh, the church that had been supporting him to come here had to withdraw their support to support something else, and this church had grown enough to be able to continue supporting him. Uh, so those are you know kind of some things that, that have happened, but I just think about that. Wow, you open up that box and there's $1 there. Uh, fortunately, that's not the case uh, any longer. But some churches hire too many people. If there's anything that needs to be done, they're like, well, we've got money. We'll just hire somebody you can never hire enough people to do all the things that need to be done, nor should you try. Um, because that's not what church is about. Church is about everyone doing uh, part of the work. And the truth is, is that in order to reach the world with the gospel, we're going to need missionaries and church planters who can support themselves for the most part. Because there are some areas where it's going to take a long time to build that support. It's going to take a long time. or And you may never get the kind of support that you need to be able to provide for your needs. I, I think about a friend of mine from high school who is serving, who is working as a science teacher at a public school in New York City. He's also uh, started a church there that's, that's growing and doing well. But he loves science. He loves teaching science. But he loves ministry and he loves people. And so he's doing both. Uh, and that's what he, he, he feels God has called him to. Um, and I think about other parts of the world where there's just object poverty it's going to be really hard for them to be able for our local church to be able to support that person so other churches have to come alongside and to some degree they'll have to be able to support themselves so let's keep going here starting at verse 19 paul says for though i am free from all men i've made myself a slave to all that i might win the more and to the jews i became a jew that i might win jews to those under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, though I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I may, be, that I may by all means save some." And I do all these things for the sake of the gospel, that I may become a fellow partaker of it. So, Paul talks about becoming all things to all men. This approach of doing whatever it took to identify with the people who were apart from Christ. And it even meant that at times he kept the law. You know, the law is what the Jewish people had been under. It's how they thought they were to have a right relationship with God. But then Christ came and fulfilled the law. But there were were times when Paul kept the law. We'll look at a few examples. In uh, Acts chapter 16, it talks about he circumcised Timothy, whose father was a Greek, which maybe was a bigger commitment for Timothy than for for Paul. (laughs) But he did it not to be right necessarily under the law, but to remove any hindrance there could be to the gospel. In Acts eighteen, it talks about Paul cutting his hair because he was keeping a vow, and in Acts twenty-one, it talks about Paul going through a purification uh, ceremony so that he could, so there would not be any hindrance to those who were still living by the law. They say, well, you know, you know, Paul's just not with the program. He was like, no, let's just get that off the table. It's not an issue. But it's important to know that Paul was not Judaizing. There was this view among some that you had to become a Jew, a practicing Jew, before you become a Christian. And that's not what he's doing here. He's just doing things to remove the barriers. Because we, as we see in Galatians, Christ was responsible for the law for, uh, to the law for us so that we are no longer responsible to it. In, Christ, in Galatians 3.13, uh, Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And then later in that same chapter, it says, Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. So it's not the law that justifies us with God, it's faith. But the law points us to that to show us that we need Christ. So he says, I've become all things to all men. What, in my view, is kind of a culmination of this passage and probably the one thing or one of the verses that we have most memorized. So he did all this without breaking the law of Christ. And I believe in the same way that Jesus did it when He became a man. God came down and lived among us, took on humanity uh, to reach us. And to a certain extent, Paul is doing the same thing. He is identifying with those he's trying to reach as much as he can without breaking the law of Christ. It's this idea that Kind of to some degree on our in our day we call contextualization, you know. So, like, well, we're going to try to fit in. We, we've, you know, I know Chet talked about this a little bit last week. What is it? Ta- is it tattoos? Is it facial hair? I remember the first time I came to this church. I will tell you this story. I was like, man, I'm gonna have to grow out a beard if I'm gonna hang around here because everybody, all the guys, were just like this full on beards, and I was like, man, I'm gonna have to give me a month and I'll be there. Um, so uh, that, that's not necessarily what we're talking about, even though it could be. Um, but he is talking about contextualization. Paul became all things to all men. Even at times, he quoted their own poets to him to point them to Christ. Um, but he didn't conform to the world. He took what we could say are the good things from it and used them, but he didn't take on the bad things. He didn't sin in that matter. And he didn't do it just for the sake of fitting in or feeling cool, he did it for the sake of the gospel. You know, because it, it can be real easy for us to say, well, I'm just contextualizing. It's like, well, okay, well, what's the point of that? You know, is it for the gospel or is it just so that people don't think you're a weirdo? Um, we have to make sure that we're doing it for a point. So a call to ministry does not necessarily mean leaving the working world. It could be God's call for you to do the thing that you're training for now. I mean, and here we have scientists, pharmacists, doctors, social workers, counselors, all those different things, God may want you to do that in addition to the ministry that He's called you to. Don't think that if God calls you to something that that means you quit your job because that may not be the case. But even beyond that, is there anything that you have a right to, that you have a rightful claim to, but you are not claiming it for the sake of the gospel? That could be a lot of different things say, well, you know, this is something that's perfectly okay. Well, yeah, that's fine, but are you willing to put that aside for the sake of the gospel? You know, there's this false prosperity gospel. It's kind of paraphrased as name it and claim it. Are you willing to do the opposite of that, to name it, say, yes, that is something I have a right to, but I'm not going to claim it, or I'm not going to claim it in this situation because it would hinder the gospel? And then as a church, are we both individually and corporately Truly sacrificing to reach people through the gospel. That, that goes into how we spend our time, how we spend our money, uh, how we use the resources we have. It's part of the reason we're in a basement. It's because it's like, do we pay money for rent or do we give money to missionaries? This may not always be our situation. The math may change on that at some point. But for right now, that is our call. And that's what we're trying to be faithful to do. Let's keep going. Verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. And everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, we an imperishable Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I buffet my body, I discipline my body, and make it my slave. Lest possibly, after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. All right, time for my visual aid. I'm not a terribly crafty person, but uh, I did go grab some rosemary and make this out. Uh, So, the... You're probably familiar with the Olympic Games. You know, during the time that Paul was writing this, the Olympic Games were kind of in their early heyday, but they were not the only games going on. There were the Isthmian Games, which took place near Corinth. And I think this is probably what Paul's referring to because they were much closer to the people he was writing to. They're kind of like the Olympics, but with the passion of UGA football. Uh, they were very excited. You know, this was something that was a part of their life. they were a periodical that happened every other year. Uh, if you wanted to compete... You had to train for 10 months with a qualified trainer. You were not allowed any wine. You had a very rigid diet. Um, And there was a very specific training regime that you had to go through to qualify to compete. So competing was not something you just said, hey, I think I'm going to go out there and do this thing. No, it was something that you worked very hard for. And then in verse 25, uh, he says they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Now these wreaths at that time were probably made, of, uh, were a garland of uh, from a fir tree or pine or parsley. I think there was maybe an example where they used celery, which would probably look a little funny. Uh, if, you, um, if you watch the Olympics, they typically have uh, olive leaves, is what they use for the Olympics. Um, I didn't have any of those, so I went and stole some rosemary from our backyard, um, which is Mediterranean, it's close enough. Um <laughs> But And it smells like what we had for supper last night because so, um, we had some rosemary in it. So it had this perishable reef that before too long, the leaves are going to turn colors and they're going to start falling off and it's just going to be a group of twigs. But they worked so hard for it. They compete. They trained hard. They competed hard. Now, yes, it's a lot of the fame that went along with it. But it was symbolized by a perishable reef which just like fame and money and everything else is going to fall away. If they did all that, for this, what should we do for an internal uh, reward, an imperishable wreath? I love verse twenty-six. It makes me think of Melissa's mom Terry, who's a champion boxer. If you don't know, um, he says, he says we don't. He says, I, he says I box in such a way as not beating the air. You ever seen somebody shadow boxing? You know, just kind of working through the moves. Uh, that, that serves a purpose. But it's a lot of difference when you get in the ring with somebody and you're throwing punches and having punches thrown at you. You're in a different mode. You know, I, I've done it once and I had headgear and gloves and all that. And let's just say that it's game time when somebody walks you upside the head and you're like, okay, now we're it's time to go. Um, and for a little 150 pound guy that just graduated high school, it was uh, a little intense. So, um, but he said, but what Paul's saying here, he says, I'm not shadowboxing. I'm throwing knockout punches here. I'm swinging as hard as I can. And then in verse 27, he talks about, I buffet my body. Your your translation may say, I discipline my body. All those kind of fall short. He's talking about self-control. It's this idea of wrestling to the point of being black and blue under your eyes. The, The Isthmian Games had a wrestling competition that there were basically two rules. You can't bite the other person, and you can't gouge out their eyes. Other than that, game on. This is intense, okay? So when Paul says, that's, that's the language he's using when he talks about this. There's a saying, the body may be a good servant, but is a bad master. Our bodies are supposed to be controlled by our spirit, by our mind. We're not supposed to live in service to our bodies. Yes, we take care of the basic needs that our bodies have, but we can't follow every appetite that our body has. That's not good for us. For the athlete, self-control includes their diet, how they exercise, sleep, that's a big thing, and how they train. You exercise to get in good shape, you train to do specifically what you're going to do in your sport. For the believer, the disciplines are prayer, reading your Bible, worship, so we can resist temptation. And there's training. There are things that we do, we should be doing as believers that we got to train for. We got to be ready for. So when the opportunity comes up, uh, we're ready for it. Verse twenty-seven also has a little bit what can be confusing or maybe a little scary for us. He says, "But I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified." Like, whoa, this is Paul here. He's talking about being disqualified. What is, he, what is he talking about? Well, let me offer some assurance that he's not talking about salvation. You know, we, we know all throughout Scripture that our salvation is secure. Um, we can mess up horribly, but it's not on us. It's on God. Um, he holds our salvation. Uh, it's not something that we can give up. But that's a, that's a wholesome fear to know that we can be disqualified. Disqualified from what? I think for Paul, he's talking about his ministry because he talks about after I have preached to others, I myself be disqualified. You can have such a moral failing that it destroys your ministry or harms your testimony. Um, this is I'll give you one example and then maybe a few others. We're thinking about Todd Gurley. Good guy. I see him pretty regularly in our buildings. He didn't do anything really horrible, but he did something that was against the rules. And because of that, he hasn't been able to play the last two games. He may have lost his chance at the Heisman Trophy, and we don't know what the rest of the season is going to look like for him. He's been disqualified. He may get reinstated. Who knows? So that's not a huge thing, but his breaking the rules had consequences. And if Paul had done something that hurt his testimony, there would have been consequences to his ministry. In my lifetime, the media has been full of people who were apparent champions for Christ, who failed morally, and it destroyed their ministry, destroyed churches, just just, ripped, just caused irreparable harm to so many people. Um, some of them were... TV evangelists, some of them were ministers at local churches, some of them had a high profile, some of them you've never heard about. Um, it usually has to do with sex or money or something like that to where what the body wanted, they went after to one degree or another and it destroyed their ministry. I, it, I, hey, I've messed up in a lot of ways. But when I see something that could destroy my testimony, those are the things that scare me. Because I'm like, if I hurt my own reputation, that's just on me. If I hurt the reputation of Christ or our church, then that's a bigger deal. And so that's something that we have to be very careful for. That's why he goes through all of this. That's why he puts aside all the things that he has a right to for the sake of the gospel, so that he doesn't fall. He guards himself uh, as best he can. But he's also talking about a heavenly reward. I know that sometimes that's something that we kind of struggle to understand that, wow, isn't heaven enough? Isn't being with Jesus enough? But the Bible says that there are rewards in heaven for what we do, for how we live our life. And so he's wanting to make sure that he doesn't miss out on that. Whatever God has for him is what he wants. So how do we... So how do we make this, you know, it's like, well, okay, I don't really think God wants me to be a, an evangelist or a minister, and so this is not really a, a, a deal for me. Hopefully by this point you've seen it is, but let's, let's spell it out a little bit. First of all, are you in the race? He talks about running the race to win. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you're not even in the race, all right? Deciding to follow Him, committing your life to Him is the starting line. And you go from there. If you're not, if that's not where you are, then you can get there this morning. Uh, don't wait till tomorrow or later today. Uh, do it here and now before you leave. So you're a believer. Are you running to win? Are you disciplining yourself to not be disqualified? Are you practicing the spiritual disciplines? Uh, Are you training? Are you practicing? Are you actually doing the things that a believer should be doing? Are you actively working to avoid temptation? Let me give you a pretty innocuous example. You're trying to have a good diet. If you buy the ice cream and put it in your freezer, you will eat the ice cream because it is in your freezer. Yeah, so? If that is a temptation for you to do it outside of what is appropriate in your diet, don't buy the ice cream. And you're like, okay, well, that's pretty innocent. Well, there's a lot of things that are not so innocent that we need to have the same approach with. If a certain TV show causes you to sin, don't watch that TV show. I I, I told some of our folks, you know, Courtney's been traveling a good bit, and, and I said, you know, when she's traveling, there are temptations that come up that don't normally come up when she's around just because our schedule is different. So I have to be active whenever she's gone to have, I have to just do things differently. I can't just do whatever I want to because I have to avoid that temptation. So think about what those things are for you. Um, But then accountability. Just like athletes have coaches, if you're trying to work out, it's such a big help to have a personal trainer. That's why folks like Danielle, you know, get paid so they can keep you accountable for what you said you were going to be doing. We need that. You need your teammates. If you're on a team, it's like, I don't want to fall down because that hurts my team. It's the same with the church. We have those people who keep us accountable, but then we also have our teammates. To what lengths are you going in order to identify with those who are apart from Christ? So, Are you investing your time and your energy in those who are away from Christ? Or are you kind of living in a Christian bubble? There's a balance between protecting yourself from sin and building a bubble around yourself. You know, Jesus was called a drunkard and a glutton, even though he was neither, but he hung around with people who were. You know, I I, I don't really drink, and so if somebody calls me a drunkard, that's pretty funny. Um, So I know it's not true. So, But if that's... If that's said of you, it's like, you know, he spends so much time with people who are away from Christ that he might be confused for one of them. But if you're but if you not the one, if you're not participating, you're just there because you love these people and you want to share Christ with them, there's a balance to be struck there. Does it affect where you live? Both macro, the city, country, state that you live in, and also micro. Does it affect what part of town you live in? The, I mean... That could go any number of directions. But think about that. Does it affect where you live? Does it affect what job opportunities you take? Does it affect your work environment? Does it affect how you dress and your appearance? You know, I could have come in this morning with a suit and tie on, you know, because that's what people who are preaching in a lot of other churches are wearing. That probably would have been a barrier immediately. Hopefully, y'all would have gotten over it, but that'd be a barrier. If I were to go to one of those churches and preach this same message, saying the same words, but came dressed like this, all they would see is my blue jeans and wouldn't care about what I said. So we have to do that. If I were to go to Hinder Shots and try to share the gospel with somebody in a suit and tie, it might not work so well. So we have to think about those things. But here's the kicker. After you do all those things, are you actually sharing the gospel? This is aimed at me, okay? So if it hits one of y'all, then it might apply as well, but it's aimed at me. There has to be intentionality. If we do all these things and then we never get to the point of actually sharing the gospel, we're just out for a jog, you know? We're not running a race. We're just circling the block. So we ha- if we're going to run to win, we actually have to get to the point of sharing the gospel, there's a lot of different ways to do that. Be sensitive to that, to do it in a loving way, but we actually we have to do it, you know, because there are a lot of good people out there who are far away from Christ. So think about these things. How do we become all things to all people? How do we run the race to win?